0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. Here we are for episode 25 after our holiday break and vacation. You know, we both had a good time, I think. We were able to spend some time with family and also work on a few things for the podcast. As you may have noticed, we've got new cover art that we are super stoked about. We're really happy with with the way that came out, as well as tweaking some things on the website, and we'll continue to make changes as we work to be the best podcast we can be in the meantime a lot of stuff has gone down and and we'd be remiss not to talk about it in particular the uh storming of the Capitol.
1: it's amazing how fast things can go south you can one minute be watching something peaceful in the next You've got all kinds of madness i would have i would not have thought it possible for a large protest that had been predicted, not just predicted, but anticipated, right? We knew, they knew there was going to be a protest here, been planned. That's what it takes to get a massive amount of people there. And security should be keenly aware of that and keeping track of those kind of things. They require things like public approval to protest in most cases. Most cities, most places have, you have to get things like permits to, to have these sort of gatherings, especially if they're massive. So, how this could happen is another question we're not going to get into. But that it did happen and that it has a massive effect on things going forward is unfortunately the case.
0: And so a lot of people are talking about what happened. A group of people stormed the Capitol, destroyed some property, people got hurt. And Five people died. Yeah, several people died. Then they were kicked out of the Capitol. But people are also talking about a lot of things that that didn't happen. And you know, a lot of people are throwing around, you know, words like a coup like this is this is a coup that Trump executed to overthrow the government. And while I am <laughs> definitely not in favor of Trump in any sense of the word, this was not a coup there there's there's no stretch of the imagination where where you can where you can call this a coup. A coup is all about the the legal seizure of power from the government. And while some people may have wanted what happened to have been a coup and maybe some of the protesters who were there talked about how they were going to overthrow the government, it doesn't change the fact that there was no seizure of power. This was not a coup, this was a riot. If right. you go into a government building and throw around the papers, you are not trying to overthrow the government necessarily. There needs to be another element. There needs to be something else there that makes it a coup. If Trump had gone to the military leaders, if he had gone to the Pentagon and said, hey, we are taking over the government, this is my government, and I'm not leaving office, that would have been a coup. And that would have been very different. But that's not what happened.
1: No, it was okay. a riot. It was a riot. To, to create a coup in this country would be ridiculously hard. You would need to control a number of things. Um, and, and even if you could control everything happening in DC, if you somehow managed to have the Senate, maybe you've got the Senate and the, the House voting at gunpoint, you know, you've got them locked in there. You have the security necessary to hold it. You have enough of the military power that you can, you could withstand an assault or not, not be attacked by the military you know that's only a, f- a fraction of the problem you you would have to have some way to then impose the laws you're making from there on the rest of the country which means you need people everywhere all over the country to what is the long game plan if this is a coup what's how do you, how do you go from this first step to running everything in the united states it just if this is a coup it's the it's the worst The worst thing that's happened since episode nine of Star Wars. (laughs) That's about how much sense it makes, right? This this is – Very little to none. (laughs) Very little to none. For those of
0: you who haven't seen the movie. It's –
1: yeah, this is not a coup. This is a bunch of people who are peacefully protesting. Some of them probably looking for a fight. Obviously, some of them may be looking for things to happen. And then something happened and they end up in the Capitol building. And one of the other things that you can say like – Okay, from the perspective of justice, what do these people deserve? Well, if it's a coup, if what you're doing is you've organized some attempt to to impose uh, a government system on people and to overthrow the government they have now and to to force them into a kind of subjection, what we're talking about is things like sedition, treason, uh,
0: things that get the death penalty, murder
1: too. Yeah, uh, attempted uh, yeah conspiracy to. Uh, commit murder among the other charges. Yeah, all of this stuff. There's, there's no way that you would escape life in prison at the very least, if not the death penalty, if that's what you were doing. As it is, they're getting, you know, it's breaking and entering in a federal building, and those are the kind of charges that are being leveled against them, and rightfully so. They now, should no, and, no doubt, they should suffer
0: those charges. But and and that is the thing is that not only is what happened an illegal riot, but it most definitely was more on a symbolic level, because the Capitol is not stormed every day. This is <laughs> this is a, a singularly unique instance in American history, and it is incredibly important. We're not trying to downplay what's happened because it's not a coup. You can be shocked and upset that this happened and that there are going to be serious implications because of it. And and we absolutely agree with that. And we're we're we want to talk about that because what this does represent is a country that is so fundamentally polarized, fragmented, separated, and divided down these lines in such a way that that people, first of all, that people protested, that so many thousands of people were there to protest in the first place, protest what is normally a non-event. You know what I mean? What what was happening that day was the the certification of the election. And every four years that is not a very exciting day. It's just it's just part of the process. But people have become so polarized and so upset with the other parties that something like this even had the chance of happening. And yeah. that's worth noting.
1: Yeah, when there's a when there's a riot like this, you the one thing you could say there is that's present is there's a lot of anger. There's something there that's going to make people act like a, not make people but there's something there that's co- that is leading the people to act like a mob act foolishly and dangerously and do things they might not otherwise do and that there's no question that the idea that they believe which was that the election has been stolen is the kind of thing that that would lead you to think that you have to take drastic steps you have to do something and that kind of that kind of resistance that kind of uh, what's the word that kind of opposition where you have two parties that believe such corruption and negative things about each other that they are willing to do that kind of stuff is not healthy, to say the least.
0: And the thing is, is, is even though this event was singular, its inspiration was not. those Those negative feelings, that anger, that hopelessness, that frustration, that's something that a lot of people felt four years ago when Trump was elected. Well, 8
1: years before that, you had Obama. And when he was elected, the Republicans were afraid that everything was going to not, that everything was going to be changed in ways that would never you'd never be able to recover from, right? Yeah, they That was going to be
0: the end of the Republic.
1: Yeah, they didn't just lose a battle, they lost the war. And and that's the way they're talking again now, and that's the way that Democrats were talking when Trump was elected. And yes, okay, when elections happen, the other side is disappointed. And if that's all we were saying, we might as well be saying the sky is blue, but it's more than that. And it's more than that as it escalates each time. Each time it gets worse and it gets worse because there's more at stake. It gets, which is to say, I think people are right to be more upset about an election this decade than an election five decades ago because there's far more at stake. The government has much, is acting on a much wider scope It's exercising far more power. It's determining more important things that affect you regularly, especially during COVID-19, right? That's, as we've mentioned before, this is why, this is why people are so into politics this year. It's dictating whether or not they can leave their house and whether or not they can gather with their friends, who they can have Thanksgiving with. And if that's the, the role that government's going to play, then it's going, people are going to act like it. If it's going to determine the course of their life, People are going to act like it determines the course of their life, and they're not going to be happy when they lose.
0: And the thing is, is that there is still a large amount of power that are held on state and local levels, and there are so many decisions that are not being made at the national level. I mean, COVID is a great example where so many decisions are being made at the state level, which begs the question, if this is how upset people are getting at a president in a presidential election right now, imagine how upset people are going to be four years from now, eight years from now, 16 years from now, as that federal power only increases when decisions like COVID that were made on the state level will be made on the federal level.
1: Yeah. It's ironic because as you said, the states, the state, COVID-19 is one of the big issues of this election. And as we said before, who's president over this is actually not not going to be that much of a determinant factor because the states are still going to be the ones who are deciding. And yet that was fed into national politics. That has been, it played a determinant role in this, in this election and in people's motivations to vote, even though it should be affecting the states rather than the national elections.
0: Basically the picture we're trying to paint is that you've got these two parties who have in many cases diametrically opposed views. You know, they don't disagree on everything, but there are fundamental issues Where there are irreconcilable differences. You know, things like, you know, abortion and gun control, for example, are issues where there is not a lot of middle ground. There's, in many cases, no middle ground. Uh Uh-huh. And those are issues that are often controlled on a national level. And so it makes sense that people are going to be upset. It makes sense that people are going to feel like they have no hope. You know, If they're not going to win the presidency, if they're not going to win the Congress, then what recourse do they have? What options do they have? And that's how you start to see people turning to violence. And that's something that we're going to see more of in the future, not less. That if we continue down this path of consolidation of power in the national government, You're going to see more riots, more protests. You're going to see these presidential elections every four years become nastier and nastier because more and more is going to be at stake and people are going to be more and more upset and more and more, not just upset, but despairing if their side doesn't win.
1: And if that doesn't seem like a clear path to civil war, people an alarming number of people are saying that we're likely to have a civil war. I think it's 39% at this point. Think that there may be a civil war in the future, and if we can't change the course, I think that is. I think that's correct. I think. I think whether I would say yes, there's going to be a civil war. Or no, depends on whether I think this direction is going to continue. Because at some point, one side's going to seize power, and they're going to say, "We have to make sure that the pendulum never swings back. We have to make sure that the other party never can take power and impose upon us." like we are imposing upon them. And as Brad said, there's just no middle ground on these issues. So many people are like, yeah, they need to get in there and compromise. We need a leader who can work with both sides of the aisle. <laughs> you get these, these trite phrases about political virtue and the ability to work together. And it's like, where, where is that line on abortion? Where is that line on gun control? Where is that line on, uh, on whether or not you should be able to lock down someone during this, this pandemic or whether they should assess the risk for themselves. So many of these, uh, the lines are, are clear principles rather than arbitrary middle grounds. When you look at what psychology has learned, um, a good example is Chris Voss on his uh, in his book, Never Split the Difference. One of the things that we've learned about people is that we are risk averse. Losses affect us more than gains. To lose $5, It's going to have more of an effect on you than if you gain $5. So, in negotiations, you might think that if I give one thing and if I compromise on one thing and you compromise on one thing, we, we meet somewhere in the middle, that that's a good solution. It will not feel like a good solution. A good negotiation leads to both sides feeling like they won. And that's never going to happen on abortion. That's never going to happen on gun control. That's never going to happen on these big issues that the parties really fight about there there's never going to be a middle ground where both sides feel like they won there are many middle grounds where both sides are going to feel like they lost and that's only going to escalate things it's only going to escalate things
0: let me give you an example here i am i'm trying to trying to solve the crisis and so i propose that we're going to compromise on abortion and gun control so what we're going to do is we're going to ban all abortion but we're also going to ban all firearm ownership in the United States. There you go. One one for the Republicans and one for the Democrats. <laughs> now, of, of our listeners, who here is happy with that compromise? Who here is gonna be like, okay, I'm willing to I'm willing to sacrifice one for the other? And or or reverse, you know, what if we're gonna allow yeah. all abortion and we're going to allow all firearms? Yeah. Who's going to be happy with that that kind of compromise? Neither side's going to be happy with it. Both sides are gonna say, that as Dan's saying, the loss is unacceptable. So even though we've gained something, we've accepted really an unacceptable loss. Yeah. And that's the problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Chris Voss in his book would, it would suggest that that no deal is better than a bad deal. No deal is better than a, a deal that feels like compromise. And rightfully so, because you will not view it positively. It will feel like a loss rather than a win. It'll make you worse off rather than better off. And that, I mean, that presents a fundamental problem, right? If we can't negotiate to a compromise on these issues, and the alternative is to impose your will on the other party until it escalates to a point where we go to war, we're in a bad situation. And if you're not, if not aware that that's where this is heading, and if you're so stuck in your hate for the other party, That you're willing to keep pushing that line?
0: Eventually, that's where it will end up.
1: That's where you're going to end up. If we
0: continue down this road, it it may take years and years as this continues to slowly escalate. But it doesn't change the fact that inevitably, if one side is going to win and one side is going to lose, and what they're going to lose is everything they care about, then it's going to lead to bloodshed.
1: So what we want to talk about is how do we get off this train? I assume that most Americans don't want that, that that there are better ways to handle this than for us to eventually be killing each other in our houses. That's the kind of thing that happened with the Hutu and the Tusi in Africa. And if you want something absolutely horrifying, you can go look into that. Go see what that's like when two peoples finally turn on each other because it's either I control you or you control me.
0: And unless we want to end up like Rwanda, we're going to have to do something to change it and as dan said the normal proposal which is to to bridge the gap between the two sides is to sidestep the issue using federalism and if you if you haven't heard us talk about federalism go back listen to our federalism episode which is what it's called so it should be easy to find because we talk about how there's a solution which is what was actually intended when this country was created which is to have a very small number of powers in the federal government and have everything else be decided on a state level, to have the states operate as independent countries. So instead of compromising on abortion and gun control on a nationwide level, you leave abortion, you leave gun rights to the states. And the federal government doesn't say a single thing about them. You go from that issue to every other issue. And unless it has to do with a very few specific things, primarily national defense, interstate trade, and a couple of other issues that everyone can agree on, you leave it up to the states. And federalism has the ability to sidestep that division so that you can, instead of having to choose between compromise or being overpowered by your opposite party, you can instead live in a state that agrees with you and live in a state that has a government that you believe in.
1: It's beautiful in that it allows people in California to do one thing and people in Texas to do another. They're very different people. They can work together on the few issues that they have in common, and they can leave the rest to the determination of their different people. And that also gives you an option where if you don't like what's happening, you can leave and go to another state, still be part of the United States, not have to go far, but you can you can have the benefits of being able to choose many of the laws that are going to govern you by choosing where to live. And that way you can – I mean, you'll never be perfectly happy, right? It'll never be exactly what you want. But you can have extremely different people working together under the same overall government. And if that doesn't seem like a virtue, perhaps you haven't thought enough about civil war. Because at this point, <laughs> right, at this point, is, an, is, that an, is that a better alternative than you having all the things you want? No. Is it a better alternative than the reality we're headed towards of civil war? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and that's a that's an excellent point, Dan. And Federalism is not necessarily an ideal form of government. It is not a utopia that we're describing. It's a realistic system that could prevent a lot of these negative things we're seeing and allow for people to live in harmony with their governments. Now our main focus here today is not to discuss federalism because we've talked about federalism before. You're welcome to go listen to that episode. Our main focus here is to talk about how to make federalism work. And there is one simple solution that would allow federalism to become effective again. And it's called secession. Secession is a very tainted word. There's a lot of associations with that word because of the Civil War and because of The implications of slavery and racism and uh, Confederate undertones that are associated with secession. We're not interested in any of those associations. We're interested in what secession actually means and what it actually does. Secession is based on the moral argument and the moral principle that a free government is not based on coercion. That if your government system is one of coercion, then it is not a free government. And that therefore, you should only be a part of that government if it's beneficial. And so how that works on the federal level is that in the 1700s, these states got together and decided that it would be beneficial for them to join this union. And that if it stops being beneficial for them, then they are simply allowed to leave without bloodshed or anything.
1: And that basic idea, you look at... When you think of things that improve the the world, most of them are going to be inventions. You can clearly see how an invention makes life better for people. But this is one of the great revolutions in political theory. The idea that what if instead of of government being a concept of power, it were one of consent? What if it, it actually meant something to have the people who are being ruled consenting to it? That whatever good there is from government, it comes from the fact that it's doing good things for the people and that the people then would approve of it. And the two go hand in hand. If you tie the power of the government to the consent of the people, you're going to get the government doing things that the people want because otherwise they wouldn't consent, right? This is These things connect to each other. Secession is merely a facet of that principle.
0: And it's a principle that once you get past the, the tainted association should resonate with a lot of people because we already believe in the principle of free association. We believe that any citizen in the United States, if they decide that this is not the government for them, has a right to leave. Right? We don't believe that the US government should seal up its borders and say everyone who's here has to stay here, unless we as the government deign to let them leave. And of course, you'll notice that uh, that this principle of consent has a strong correlation with good governments. That you look at a lot of the really bad governments. You know, you look at a Nazi Germany, you look at a Soviet Russia, and you don't see a government that let its people leave, right? And and there's a reason for that, that if people can leave, then they're going to leave if the government does not benefit them. You know, even today, people talk about fleeing to Canada if someone gets elected, and we want them to be able to do that. No one has argued, hey, if you don't like Donald Trump too bad, you can't leave. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right right and it, i can't imagine i was thinking of like private associations would your friendships be better off if you couldn't leave <laughs> <Would> you, <laughs> you know, what you know, under what circumstances should you just never be allowed to leave like you've got a gym membership and it starts to be terrible and they start to like the gym starts to stink and you can't walk in there but you can't leave you can't leave and it's fine it's better for you like this this would be a silly idea right in every association the what One of the things that makes things good is the fact that people can leave. People could say, you know what? I don't actually want this anymore. And as soon as you're in a situation where that element is gone, you're going to watch the quality of the thing plummet.
0: Fundamentally, people tend to agree with the principle that government should exist by the consent of the governed. At least here in the United States, most people agree with that. Yes, the basic idea of democracy. It is is the basic idea beyond democracy. Democracy – is the idea of people being allowed to vote, but really what we like about democracy is the idea that the government is by the people, that it's the people's government, and it's not the government controlling the people. Where people have a hard time with secession is just making that little leap from individuals to states, and so you wanna talk a little bit about why that leap makes sense, because it it is different, obviously, the states are different than individual citizens. What's interesting, though, is that secession actually makes way, much, way more sense than having individuals leave the country. Because if an individual chooses to leave the country, they have to move to Canada. They have to physically leave their residence, leave their job, leave their friends, leave their families, well, or bring them you know, I mean, I, I meant extended family, not individual <laughs> families.
1: You can only leave the country if you abandon everyone it you love. If you
0: abandon everyone you love, apparently, <laughs> um, in order to flee the government. But when you have secession, what you can do is you can actually have a whole group of people in a physical area say, we are going to leave the government but not leave our physical location, which in many ways is much more feasible. You don't have to abandon your job, you don't have to abandon your home, and you can even continue to trade and coexist with the federal government, just with a different relationship. Secession has always been associated with things like violence and the Civil War, but it's actually not inherently violent. It's actually, by definition, a peaceful act, because if it weren't a peaceful act, It wouldn't be a legal system and would then be revolution. Anyone at any point can use violence. You don't need a law to use violence. You can just use violence. That's what revolutions have always been. Revolutions are never allowed by the government. Secession is instead a system that allows people to voluntarily leave without violence. And it's what allows federalism to work because now the states have the power in the negotiation with the federal government to say, if this is not working out for us, then we're no longer going to be a part of it. Because when they joined originally, they did it because it was mutually beneficial. If it's no longer beneficial, then why should the union exist?
1: Yeah, and that seems pretty straightforward to me. That The idea that if this is no longer good, why should it have to be forever? Why should it have to go on? Like That doesn't make any sense. If if it's not benefiting the people, why, why should it continue in spite of the people if this is a government of the people and for the people?
0: Perhaps the best way to, to defend the idea of secession is to address head-on some of the objections that have been made against secession, because secession, as we talked about before, as a principle, is pretty easy to comprehend. So instead, the objections are about the practical applications, right? It's, it's, it sounds nice, but it doesn't actually work. So the first objection I'd like to discuss is the argument, the objection, that secession is unconstitutional. My simplest answer is no, it's not unconstitutional. As someone who's read the Constitution dozens upon dozens of times, I can tell you nowhere in the Constitution does it say that secession is not allowed and someone would argue oh well nowhere in the constitution does it say lots of things and i'd say yes exactly because so many things are allowed in the Constitu- in the constitution the constitution leaves the vast majority of powers within the states go read it the constitution never out the constitution never lays out the powers of the states all they do is say, here's what powers the federal government has, everything else the states have. And that includes the power of secession. And if you go back and you look at some of the history s- surrounding not only the ratification of the Constitution, the forming of the United States, but then look at the years following and how people act as they figure out this new government, you'll find that the idea of secession. Was not only known, but was openly discussed. There was a movement in New England early on to leave the Union. And the discussions were not a matter of, well, can we leave the Union? Is that allowed? But were instead discussions of, should we? Is that the best thing for our state or states to leave the Union or should we stay? Because it was understood and it was so clear that it wasn't a constitutional issue. That the states ratified the Constitution, they voluntarily chose to join, and at any point they could leave.
1: And where this becomes gray is not actually in the text of the Constitution or interpreting it, not actually in the in the opinions of the founders or in the the history of the ideas and the nature of the of the Constitution. It becomes gray in actual execution around the time of the Civil War. The opinions and the tradition that we inherit from some of Lincoln's rhetoric. Lincoln argued that it should be a perpetual union, that the very nature of government is such that it must be forever, that it must be perpetual. But again, as Brad's saying, that's, that may have been what Lincoln thought. That is not what the founders thought, and that's not what the people who wrote the Constitution thought, and that's not what the Constitution says. In fact, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, which ironically Lincoln cites in his arguments— among the things it says, it says that whenever any form of government become destructive of these ends, these ends being to secure rights, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, you, there's some nuance there. You can go into what exactly does that mean? Well, it can't mean you can never alter or abolish the government and that you can't decide what should be, what would be effective for your people, right? What would be effective for you and those that are under this new government. Clearly, it's saying that the consent of the government implies that you can change the government if the government is acting against your consent, right? That you can you can form a new political association of some kind, alter or abolish the government you're under so that it actually is fulfilling the ends of the government. Which combined with the constitution, as Brad was was explaining, which only limits the federal government, says nothing about the powers of the states other than what's implied by giving the federal government some powers and, and the opinions of the founders. uh, The idea that the, that secession is unconstitutional is simply not true in any theoretical sense. Now, if what you mean is the secession is not going to be allowed, that's a whole nother conversation, right? That's, that's an, that's an entirely different objection.
0: And and thank you, Dan, for bringing up the, the Civil War. Second objection, second point that's brought up, and this one's brought up quite often, is that secession cannot be done peacefully. That secession will always lead to war. That secession is really just revolution with a different name. That it's a violent insurrection. And that idea is based on one fact. As Dan said, it's based on the Civil War. Because before the Civil War, secession was viewed one way, and after the Civil War, secession was viewed another way. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. The Civil War was fought after the South seceded, and the North won, and the United States came back together, and the people and the nation had to grapple with the fact that this happened, right? And they had to they had to write histories about it and they had to deal with it intellectually, emotionally. And the only way that made sense to do it was to make everything as clear cut as possible. The North was good, the South was bad. The Civil War was the South's fault and was because they seceded and because of slavery. And the North had to step in and stop it. That was the Civil War and it was because of these bad things secession and slavery in reality the civil war is so much more complicated it's so much if more we helpful. could we could spend hours discussing and talking about the civil war about how it happened how it went down the complicated issues that were at play
1: right not even getting into the details of the war itself
0: just trying to establish why it what happened what happened and why it happened yes the important thing to understand though is that Before the Civil War happened, after Abraham Lincoln was elected and the South seceded, it's interesting that it happened after an election, remind you of anything, but after after Abraham Lincoln was elected, the South said, we cannot stay in this union because it is no longer beneficial. For trade reasons, for economic reasons, this is not going to work based off of Abraham Lincoln's economic and trade policies, so we're going to leave and they left and you can go and you can go read editorials you can go read newspaper articles from the north talking about what happened and they weren't saying and some of them some of them obviously were but they were having a discussion of the south secession as a reasonable option they were upset at the south obviously cuz they didn't want the south to leave but they let it happen and in fact Abraham Lincoln you know who is obviously incredibly anti-secession, let it happen as well. He did not, after they seceded, immediately launch troops to invade the South. Instead, he waited for a provocation. He waited for an excuse to invade the South. He waited until Fort Sumter when he said, hey, and he could point at something and say, this is the reason we're invading. Because Abraham Lincoln understood even though he didn't believe in secession that secession was accepted as not only a constitutional but a peaceful act because if it wasn't peaceful he could have used it as an excuse to invade right away but because it was a peaceful legal act he had to wait for an excuse in order to invade and right. if that's not proof that secession can be peaceful i don't know what is
1: <laughs> right the, the whole it's it's such an interesting episode uh, where that period of time. And when you look at the maneuvering that Lincoln has to do to turn political opinion against the South, being able to leave it all and say, this is some kind of insurrection or this is some kind of aggressive act. And the fact that we're not saying that uh, we're not making a, a judgment call on, on what he did or what there, or what happened in those events one way or the other. But the point is that political opinion, obviously during that time, thought that secession was a thing. A and totally viable option. It was a viable option, and would have probably with with uh, you imagine any number of other par- uh, presidents would have let it happen, and wouldn't have tried to manufacture this this struggle that then allowed them to uh, claim an almost a defensive invasion of the South. That whole thing, though, the political maneuvering that's required, the uh, the rhetoric that Lincoln uses to claim no, they actually haven't left. They're still a part of it, and then to say that this is a this is some kind of insurrection when they're not with the Ford and like, the it, it, it's a really interesting time. As Brad said, we could spend hours on it. We're not going to right now. But secession can be done peacefully. So that you can just let people go. In fact, Brexit's another example of basically that same thing. They joined some superior government superior in some sense, some kind of uh Confederate agreement that could actually impose very real taxes and things on them. Which and was they really left.
0: not that different it's not from that the different. United States government pre Civil War.
1: Right, right. The powers it was given were, were different, but the arrangement is, is very similar in that they had different spheres of that they controlled And anyway. But the but then then they left, right? And did anyone invade them? No. Obviously secession can be done peacefully. Uh, secession is not a guarantee of civil war. The third objection related to the civil war is the stigma on it, right? People, people talk about secession. And they're like, oh, it's because you're pro-slavery. It's a ridiculous accusation. It's sad that that accusation is ever made that people say this idea, this, this political act has at some point been used in history to do something bad. Therefore it's evil. And if that's the, if that's the standard of what's an acceptable act, what's an acceptable means or tool to do something, then literally nothing should be allowed. No one would ever act. If you couldn't do anything that had ever been used badly, you don't get to do anything. It's, yeah, it's a- you
0: you don't have to be pro south in order to be pro secession. The south and secession have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> right. right. I they're mean as as Dan ideas. said with with Brexit, the fact that they're calling it Brexit and not secession is because of the stigma. No yeah. one wants to make that correlation even though in terms of what they're doing it's fundamentally the same. So so yes, yeah, so we are not advocating secession, we are advocating A uh, peaceful break off of the states from the federal union. Would that does that make it better if we call it that instead? I mean, we could make (laughs) up a new word for it. You know, we We could could. we we could call it deintegration. We (laughs) we we are proposing today deintegration as not the only solution, but as a viable option.
1: Right. Take it right. or leave it. And that's what happens. That's what happens with these word games, with these things where like ideas are if you can connect them to things, you just create new terms. You create a new uh, a, a new language uh, to – a new vocabulary to convey old ideas and make it sound like they're original. And that happens all the time. And it's a, it's a silly game that ends up making things more complicated rather than less. And it's a game we don't think we need to play. Secession – hopefully you can see that secession is not a sin – it's not some evil inherently. Now, it may be unwise <laughs> at times, but that it's that it's inherently evil is, is silly.
0: Yeah, and we're not arguing that every state sh- sh- should secede. We should clarify that real quick right now. We're arguing that states should have the right to secede and sh- that the fact that they may exercise that right will allow federalism to work. They need to have that power in order for federalism to work. Not bring it up yet, but we'll expand on that after we address some of these some, a few more objections.
1: Another objection that's very common is to argue that our national security is at stake and to let states leave would hurt our security. And that's kind of a vague allegation. I don't know if they expect China to somehow turn the new the state that left against the rest of the country or what. But that's the claim. Ironically, That's not what history would suggest. What history suggests is that the most secure groups in the entire world, the most secure countries, and it was Montesquieu who first observed this, was what he described as small republics that work together. And you've heard, you've probably heard the phrase, if you've been involved in politics or around politics, that a a republic will not fall from without until it's been corrupted from within, or it's been, uh, until it falls first from within. The idea being that that a strong country has to have internal problems like Rome did before it's able to get sacked from outside. And there's some truth to that, but it's not, it's not like inherently a republic is powerful unless in, in that some internal dispute is its kryptonite. But historically, what's been the trend is that small independent countries have been able to unite with other small independent countries when they have republican or democratic forms and then work together as kind of confederacies that lasted a very long time. There's a reason that it's the small groups that are united in some kind of confederate form. And by confederate, I don't mean like the South confederate. I mean the normal form of confederacy, which is to say that you've got, you've got independent countries that have some kind of agreement, some kind of uh, – it's, uh, it's a
0: strong alliance, really. It's a
1: strong alliance, right, right a strong alliance among several smaller groups. Those kind of forms outlast generally the large states with a lot of power. And the reason for that is be- and the reason for that is probably in part because they don't have as many internal problems. They don't have this problem that we're headed towards, where you have various disparate people who are at each other's throats and who are going to eventually have to conquer each other to impose their will. that's already There's already a war brewing within our country, right? Because of these disparate peoples. Smaller states don't have that problem. The people are more, more homogenous in their ideas and in their beliefs. And that actually leads to greater security. That independence, that, that ability to, to have your own space and to have more of a, a say in what your political government is like has actually been historically a better guarantee of security, both within and without, than these large states where everything is centralized. One of the major ways this trend manifests itself is in empires. When you have everything centralized, there's a tendency for the government to look outside and to start pushing for more things. When you have a confederacy, the governments are much more likely to be content in defending themselves. And this is actually one of the reasons why secession would probably make us more defensive in our warfare and less likely to tend towards empire and towards the kind of domination of the world that you see in many of the strong, single, centralized countries. And it doesn't take very much knowledge of history to recognize that these empires have a tendency to fall. You know, they stretch themselves out, they become corrupted by that, and it ends up being one of the things that leads to their downfall. So it's one of the differences between the the small Roman Republic and later the Roman Empire under the Caesars. It's also the difference between the Greeks when they defeated Persia, the strongest power in the world, with the help of their small allies, and then the empire that they became later that fell.
0: Even if a state leaves the United States, that state is still going to be interested in self-preservation because who wouldn't be? And (laughs) so that state is going to assess the international situation, look at its liabilities, its weaknesses, and it will most likely come to some kind of agreement with the United States for mutual defense that involves either it procuring its own military so- resources that it will use in conjunction with the United States for defense or maybe it will do something more unusual like negotiate to pay a certain amount of money to the United States government for protection or a dozen other things you know right, maybe they can arrange and it. there's there's so many different arrangements and so many different options that that would all be incredibly viable because the reason federalism works is because of mutual interest because the states are all agreed on a few certain key ideas and so those are the ideas they're going to work together on you don't have to coerce anyone to do what's in their own best interest and that's and that's what we would see if if this happened in terms of defense is that states are not going to leave the United States and then say, peace, see ya. we don't care if we get destroyed. We have no interest in self-preservation. All we want is to leave. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be more complicated than that and more realistic than that. People are going to face the obstacles they see.
1: Another objection related to that is that people think that as soon as secession is considered okay, all the states are going to secede or they'll threaten secession Every time you turn around and they'll be like, okay, if you don't vote this way, we're going to secede. Or if you don't do, if you don't act in the way we want to, you two, we're going to secede or you won the election. Okay, we're out. And that's just not the case. Being a part of the United States is going to be a mixed bag. Of course, there's going to be some things you don't get, and there are going to be some benefits. There are going to be some costs. The fact that you can leave just like with any other deal, any other negotiation, doesn't mean you're going to at any moment. You have to weigh, they'll weigh the costs and benefits and they'll decide whether it's more beneficial or less beneficial to them. It's not like people are gonna have knee-jerk reactions where they just bail on the government. This isn't going to be something that just because people can do it, they're going to do it all the time. I think that's a, an irrational fear.
0: But what it is going to do is because the states can leave, the federal government is going to have to shift in what it does. Because right now, if you look at the 50 states and look at how much power the federal government has, a large number of those states are getting a bad deal in terms of what the people in those states want. You know, so when you have a a country where most of the people are really getting injured more than they're getting helped by the federal government, then it would actually make sense for them to leave. And it would make sense if secession were viable for those states to threaten to secede until this overwhelming power in the federal government was reduced you know what i mean and and large numbers of issues that were decided on the federal government on a federal level would be decided on a state level and that would be not only healthy that would be fantastic that's what we want we want that threat of secession to change the system so that only those areas where the vast majority agree on are areas the federal government's gonna decide on. And what we would see is a very different federal government. What we would see is a president who gets elected, and people are okay that that president isn't a member of their party because they understand that that president is not going to decide on abortion. That president is not going to decide on gun control. That president is not going to decide on whether or not there's a COVID-19 lockdown because those decisions are now being made by the states. And that's what secession would do in reality. Yes, there might be a state or two who would leave, but the vast majority are going to stay because those changes are going to be made.
1: Yes. The final objection we want to address is that some people will get get to this point, right? They'll they'll think about secession and be like, okay, yeah, it's got a bad name historically, but actually it starts to make sense now. There may be good reasons to allow it, or at least to leave it on the table so that negotiations are changed, as Brad was suggesting. But we only want to allow secession in extreme cases, in cases where the people are actually being oppressed, because if, if what's just happened is there's a law they don't like, but it's good for them, and it actually helps a lot of people, and they're just going to leave because they don't like it when they actually should like it, that's a problem. So we need some kind of standard that says in these cases you can leave, in these cases you can't, and you allow people to leave when it's justified, and you don't allow people to leave when it's not justified. And this is where a lot of people are. They like the idea of theoretically of allowing secession in some cases and in others saying, no, obviously this is, it would, it would be wrong in this case. Here's the problem with that. Who decides when it's an extreme case where it should be allowed and where it's less extreme case and they should be forced to stay? Because I'll tell you who decides in any given country. The majority does. The people with power do. And how do the people in power who are the majority in, a, in some kind of democratic form, how do they feel about the people that they're imposing their will on leaving? <laughs> are they it's, going to allow that? Are they going to feel like it's it, what they're doing to them is extreme?
0: Not at all, Dan. Under that system, the only time secession would be okay would be as if the vast majority, it would be the majority who was in power decided that they wanted to secede. <laughs> which, which would never happen because they have happen. the power. Right. By definition, as soon as you make that the rule, you eliminate secession. Yeah. It would be if, if you passed a law and said, yeah, any state can secede, all they have to do is get a constitutional amendment that excludes them from the country. And once again, all you've done is just eliminate secession. Yeah. Eliminate that option. Yeah, it practically works, speaking it eliminates it. Mm-hmm. It only works If the states can decide for themselves, if the minority can say, hey, we're being oppressed, so we're going to leave.
1: And if they're not the judges, they will never get to leave. It has to be the minority deciding that case. It has to be of the two parties involved, the majority of the minority, the group wanting to leave and the people in power. You have to let the people wanting to leave be the judges. You have to say they think it's extreme enough. They think it's that they need to leave. They think that it's a bad deal for them, and they're the only fit judges of that.
0: I mean, really, the whole reason we're talking about this this episode is because people are realizing that just because 51% of the voting population decided something does not mean it's right. Democracy is not the ideal form of government that will make sure that everything turns out okay, because we're seeing that. Where four years ago, 51% decided on Trump and 49% of the people were like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us.
1: And started and now, talking about secession.
0: And started talking about secession.
1: In <laughs> California, they were serious. They, I mean, they never would have had a vote on it, but they were thinking about it. And there were people seriously writing about it. Like, maybe we need to revisit the idea of secession.
0: Yeah, because because we're seeing that majority rule on this largest scale is just not working it can be tyrannical and that's why federalism is a solution and that's why we need secession and there's many different ways that that could look if 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 that change were made there's many different ways that it could look and it could take many different it could take many different different Scales, but let me give you just one example to kind of highlight how natural incentives will encourage things to happen in a certain way. Let's say that Texas and a few surrounding states decide to secede from the union. They say, "Hey, we've got a strong economy. We've got we've got coastline. We've got a lot of things that a nation needs. So we're going to secede because we are not getting what we want from this union. It's more detrimental than it is beneficial." And Texas leaves. And Texas looks at their current situation and they say, hey, here are a couple of things we want. We want to be able to trade with the United States. We want to be able to defend ourselves. And the United States is sure looking like a real good ally right now. And we want a couple of other similar things, right? So what's Texas going to do? Texas is going to come back to the United States, not to join it, but to ally with it. And the United States is going to look at the the cost benefit and say, hey, Texas is gone, but they're better as an ally than as an enemy. Like if they cut off all ties with Texas, okay, well, where, where are we going to get our oil from instead of from those refineries and et cetera, et cetera? Or look at how much of the national defense budget is actually paid for by Texas. If we lose Texas, it's going to hurt us a lot. So they both come to the table and they negotiate. And they end up agreeing, okay, Texas is going to provide these these number of troops and these number of ships. It's going to help with defense. Texas is going to open borders with the United States. And here's going to be our trade agreement. Here's how it's going to work. And they come to a, an agreement as equals. Because the United States understands what Texas is bringing to the table. And Texas understands what the United States is bringing to the table. And they agree on the things that are mutually beneficial. And those things that are not, are not part of the trade. Things like abortion, things like these other issues we talked about, those have nothing to do with those mutually beneficial areas. And so they're ignored. They're not a part of the deal. Texas is going to do what it wants to do. And the United States is going to do what it wants to do. And by the time this is all finished, even though Texas is not technically part of the United States, in many ways it is. Right. Just under a better system of rules.
1: Right. Right just more independent in the spheres where it's different from the United States and aligned more perfectly on the areas where they have similar interests. It uh, that's the thing about this that fundamentally what we're the reason that we're defending secession is not necessarily because we want someone to secede, but because having that possibility on the table, first off is it that it, that it's a moral right is seems clear. that the objections are, mistaken and faulty at best. They're often more about propaganda and trying to associate it with negative things is, uh, is I think, fairly undisputable as far as uh, conceptually. But in practice, what it brings to the table is a new arrangement in the negotiations and powers of our government. It's secession that gives federalism its teeth that says, look, we don't want you to impose on us values that are not ours. We don't want you to impose, uh, government issues of which you could instead do your thing and we'll do ours. And if you do, we're done. We're done with this arrangement. We will be in, become an independent body and then we will renegotiate on different terms. That is the, the, the only real defense of federalism. It is the, it is the right that makes federalism not only possible, but inevitable. Because under that system, anybody being crushed, whether it's it's Democrats in California who are being imposed upon by Trump winning the 2024 election, or whether it's Republicans being crushed by the tyranny of Hillary, who's now really old in 2028 after she beats Trump, you know you never know what the future will bring here, right?
0: <laughs> no, it's true, but we do know that in the future both sides are going to get their will the power will swing on. Back. Yes yeah, by the other side.
1: Yes, the power will swing back and forth, escalating, getting worse each time your enemies are in office until eventually they become true enemies and are trying to crush you and you have to defend your life by violence. This cycle must stop and you can stop it by allowing secession, even if it's never used, because it changes the way that you have to negotiate it at, at the national level. It changes the balance of power without actually having to, you know, change the laws, rewrite anything, anything, yeah. anything at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the reason we defend this like this, what 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 does need to change is the perception around it. We need to remove the biases that are already in place against the idea of secession so that states can actually discuss it seriously and say, and and maybe even vote on it, right? Maybe be like, look, things are crazy right now. And the Republicans might all weigh their odds and say, maybe this needs to be considered. And if there's enough support, maybe their state legislatures or through a referendum where the people of the state directly vote say, do we want to continue to be a part of this? And if you get a few of those votes happening, in a case even where they all lose by a massive amount. But if you can get that back on the table, that will change our country. That will change our country for the better. That could get us off this train, this bullet train to heck. <laughs> get us off this, uh, this one-way trip to Civil War.
0: This is incredibly well, well put. I don't think I have anything to add after that. No one likes where this is heading, so let's change it. This may not be the perfect system, but it's a practical system that's based on true principles that we can put into place quickly and effectively, and that could actually make a real difference. And so if that's not enough to sell you, you know, go back, listen to our federalism episode. We'll probably touch on this again because we think it's a it's a powerful idea.
1: Thank you for listening. This has been episode 25 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and all of the major podcasting services. Given the divisions with Facebook and these other things, we may also create accounts on other social media as we need to and as we find it useful to reach other audiences. Email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Our website is rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. And you can support us on Patreon.
0: And with that, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.